Hello everyone and welcome to tonight's MHTV. Um, tonight we're joined by my old friend Amrez Khan, who we worked with a number of years ago. Um, and we'll be talking about equality, diversity and inequality in mental health. Um, Nikki is going to be covering social media. So I'll come over to Nikki and then over to Amrez to introduce himself. Okay, Nikki? Absolutely. So we'd really like to hear from you. Any questions you've got, any comments you'd like to make. So if you're on the Facebook page watching us live, please just type away and I'll see what you're writing and pass that across. Um, and if you are catching up on uh, via Twitter, you can use the hashtag MHTV and we'll see that there and collate that. So looking forward to hearing from you. Vanessa? Lovely. Okay, um, I'm ready to just um, give you an, an introduction to yourself and then I'm curious to kind of talk to you about, um, you know, where you've been with your career since we probably last spoke about five years ago, I think, when you were working in comms. Yeah, hello everybody. My name is Amrez Khan. I'm uh, head of equality, diversity, inclusion for a mental health trust in Greater Manchester. I'm really excited to be here tonight. I have lots of passions around anti-racism education, about supporting people to be the best they can be. And I think ultimately there's a part in here about being kind. So equality, diversity, inclusion is at the core of everything that I do. I've got lived experience and I represent a number of different communities. Uh, so I'm really proud to have intersectional representation with, with with myself so really keen to get chatting with you tonight Vanessa. Brilliant so um so what led you on the journey to moving into equality and diversity um since we last since we last worked together when you were in more of a communications role? Yeah so communications I always thought to myself that I was going to go through the entire career of communications um, I always thought I'd be director of communications that was the goal that was set for me and I'm going to do this and I was in this tunnel vision and I think uh, one, in, one of my roles which was a national role I was given equality diversity and inclusion as a remit and I think my eyes really opened up I was quite naive about the world around me I didn't mm. understand that there are things out there in the world that are not good for people and they're not right and people are not always appreciated for who they are and I started seeing things differently in my day-to-day -day life there was an experience I had where someone was racist towards me and mm. I was really upset and I thought, Do you know what, I want to make a difference in the world. And mm. I started applying for equality roles. I was down south for a little while, two years supporting um, a number of uh, hospitals down there. Uh, I went to, into higher education for a little while. I thought, let's, uh, let's put my toe in the water and see what it's like in higher education. And then I decided to come back up, up, up north. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a role that I'm really passionate about, something I really love doing, and it just brings me so much joy when you're able to make a difference and you can see the impact, but a really tough and challenging role as well. Yeah, yeah, I bet it is. And it's quite interesting, that comment that you made about kind of um, seeing the world differently from how, how you used to see it, because I think that's one of the challenges, isn't it, really, that... Mm -hmm unless you kind of walk in somebody else's shoes or have that kind of experience yourself of being marginalised, then it can be quite difficult, can't it, to um, to recognise that as an issue within mental health. I know I've been, we've been talking about this at work as well in the last few days. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great point you make there, Vanessa. I think sometimes, you know, we're, life is busy. We've all got things going on in life, family, friends, cats for me as well. All these things are happening. And sometimes we are so busy in our own way of thinking, working, seeing the world, that maybe we don't stop to think, oh my God, what impact 
is happening in the world right now. I know the past two years, COVID has been, I know, really painful and awful for people. Um, and that's shown health inequalities exist yeah. in the world. I know we'll be touching on that later. And then obviously the murder of George Floyd in America also showed racial injustices are in society. So, you know, I think we have to be curious. We have to learn. We have to educate. We have to see. And if we can't see things, maybe we talk to people who think uh, think differently to us, who look differently to us, who have those um, experiences, because there's allyship, which has got a whole massive part to play in this. And how can allies support us as well? But yeah, like I say, my eyes really opened. And um, when they opened, I realised, Amrit, you've been really naive. I haven't seen stuff like this before. Yeah. So you mentioned about intersectionality for people watching. Can you say a little bit, a bit more about what that means? Absolutely. I am a gay Asian man. I also have a disability. I have struggled with mental health previously in the past. And that really made me, it's made me me, but it's been really difficult. The journey has because all these different layers of who I am sometimes can bring out different challenges for me. So, you know, in terms of me being Asian, I've experienced racism with me coming from the LGBT community. I've experienced homophobia, um, having a mental health. I've always been told by people that men are strong and men don't cry and men don't feel pain. So with each one of the layers of intersectionality, there's always been challenges but I'm really proud of who I am I'm really proud of where I was and where I've come now and people out there we were all intersectional and it's about being really um being really proud of who you are and recognizing that um this intersectionality is my identity is who I am mm-hmm. uh, and to be a voice for those communities where I, where, I, where, where I can possibly be as well yeah I think that's really important isn't it because I think traditionally yeah, we've talked about individual protected characteristics, but, you know, one kind of protected characteristic, you know, so supposing you're gay, that, you know, not all gay people will experience um, prejudice in, in the same way. As you say, it's about the intersection of other kind of layers of oppression, isn't it, um, around gender? I mean, certainly, like, working in prisons, you kind of see that intersectionality quite um, regularly, really, um, particularly around inequality as well. Um, you mentioned about um, using your lived experience. In what way do you find that you're able to do that in your in your current role? I think often people will speak to me or come and speak to me because they feel that um, what I am go- have gone through or, what, or maybe what they're going through, I might resonate with it more because I've got that lived experience. So colleagues, friends, peers, um, people ring me sometimes or talk to me about awful things that have happened, mm-hmm. um, you know, across in, in their world, whether that's professional or personal, whatever the world might be. And they'll share with me when someone says something negative or awful and they'll ask me for support, guidance, advice. They might come to me as an ally to help to, from a different community around how I would approach something. And it's really I find it a really privilege to be able to talk to people and share my experiences and discuss how um, how I've hopefully turned things around, some challenges that have come my way, and to guide and support them as well. So I think it's about that reassurance, about that advice and support, sort of an advocacy role. I think I play with that, um, which is really good. And it's always fantastic to see when people want to raise things and speak up, because mm-hmm. we have to speak up to be better, and we have to raise things. So although yeah. it's not nice to hear, it's in a way, it's good because then we understand what needs to be worked on and improved. 
Mm. And do you think the culture's changing around people speaking up more, or do you think it's um, the same as it's always been? I think it's a tricky one. I think um, as somebody from the Black Asian multi-ethnic community, uh, as an Asian man, you know, in the past when I've worked for organisations, I have raised things because I felt as though, you know, if something isn't right, I should say it. But I unfortunately have experienced times when I felt like there's been a target on my back mm. that because I've said something out loud, I then get discriminated for saying that thing out loud. And, yeah. you know, you're not, you, opportunities for promotion, you're not giving them or you're always judged because you raise some things. So you're the troublemaker badge that you get, unfortunately. And I think I'd like to be in a world where that goes away and it's not there. But yeah. I think it is there, unfortunately, at times. And people are genuinely scared and have fear to come forward and raise things because they'll then say, Amra, as well, I don't get invited to go out and about with those people. I don't get invited to be on interview panels. I don't get invited for promotional roles or if I do someone once said to me they were told you can apply for the role but you know you're not going to get it yeah yeah um and that's that's the scary bit of this I think mm. what can we do to change that do you think I think we need to as managers people peers colleagues friends we need to acknowledge when someone raises something and listen mm. and openly listen to what that person is saying the one that thing that really annoyed me, I think, was, um, if I may give an, an example, when uh, Preeti Patel, for example, and the bullying accusation that's were against her, and Boris said, well, when she speaks to me, I, I, don't, I don't have that experience of her. But then you say to that person, that's your experience of that person. It's not everybody's experience of that person. Yeah. So we've got to be open-minded and recognise that everyone's experience of people are different. Mm-hmm. And don't, you know, tell people, oh, no, that can't, that can't have happened because I think that person's amazing. It yeah. can happen. We should investigate. We should look into the allegations, make sure it's done in a very respectable, impartial manner. So if you're friends with somebody, you're not investigating them because obviously you'll have a, a bias towards them and vice versa. So I think it's about really listening, investigating and supporting people in the best way possible. Yeah, I think you're right. And that you mentioned about um, people not speaking up because the fear of kind of what might happen if they do or that it might be career limiting. Um, And I think it is really important that you've brought that up as the sort of elephant in the room that, you know, that is, um, I think that's a cultural thread, isn't it, really, that people are scared to stick their head above the parapet because of what might happen to them. But I guess if more of us did that, then it would pave the way for there to be a culture change, wouldn't mm. it, I think? It would, and I think sometimes when I talk to diverse colleagues and friends and they'll say, well, why do I have to raise it? Why is it on my shoulders to raise it? Why can't it be somebody else? And, you know, I was speaking to um, some friends who were going to times at work and sort of saying to them, you know, you raise it, and I know it's hard, and I know it's challenging, but you be brave, you be courageous, because then you'll pave a way for other people as well. Mm. so it's mm. not always you know it's about helping others as well as helping yourself too I think yeah and one of the things we've got in a lot of trust now are freedom to speak up guardians haven't we which allows people to raise concerns in a in a more anonymous mm. way do you have any experience of, of that within your organization yeah we've got a fantastic freedom to speak up guardian who's always around and willing to talk and very very confidential 
you know, what to anybody else, what, what he's discussed with people. And I think it's a really important and safe route to have when sometimes, you know, you might go to HR or your union and you're not getting the support you need. And the Freedom to Speak Up is there. So I think the safety valve of the organisation. And I think most Freedom to Speak Up guardians report into a director level role on the board. So it's not, and usually they're away from HR. So it's not in the HR team because yeah. it's completely impartial. And I've spoken to Freedom to Speak Up guardian in the past in a previous role. And they're interesting. I think each Freedom to Speak Up guardian has their own way of doing things, their own way of embedding things. And um, they are, a group, you know, they're the great people to talk to if you want the advice and if you want that support. I always feel as though um, when I spoke to the Freedom Speak Up Guardian in a previous organisation, I won't name which one, it wasn't the best experience for me, I would say, unfortunately, because mm -hmm. that particular organisation didn't have the infrastructure correct. So their Freedom to Speak Up Guardian was a non-executive director. Right. And it was never advertised who they were. They were never put out there so it was very difficult to find who they were um and it wasn't done well but in places where it's done really well the freedom to speak up guardian or champion whatever they call themselves see people wear green clothes they're wearing their lanyards they're out and about they're proactive they're having the conversations they're speaking to the chief exec and reporting concerns back they're talking about what actions can they put in place they report you know monthly quarterly reports to board of cases and casework and I think that's where it works really, really well when the organisation and the senior team are really bought into the agenda, mm. really support the agenda, because, of course, you need that buy-in to make it work. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, thank you. Um, Nikki, have you got any thoughts? Do you want to come in at this stage? Or? i got any thoughts. That's a bit of a broad one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess one of the things I was thinking about is um, how it's always strange to me that people seem to be much more worried about being called racist than being racist. And that is is very weird, isn't it? You know, the idea that the that, that people who are already being harmed then have to do the heavy lifting of tiptoeing around people who just can't take correction, can't can't hear, critique, can't and very nice people, people who who generally try and be polite, people who want the best for other people, seem to find this one thing so very difficult to talk about. And so it's not just enough, is it, to be neutral? You've got to try really hard to do the right thing. And I think one of the things that's been a problem in health is because we think of ourselves as forces for good, of, of people who are trying to do the right thing. Sometimes we haven't always done the work that we need to do in order to make sure that people are treated fairly, make sure that people are included and feel equal and are equal. And I think that's something that's been an issue perhaps for health in a way that maybe it hasn't for other places. <clears throat> And the other thing was that the cost of the cost of doing the right thing is something that's very much underrecognized, I think. So if if, if it's the, the weight of anybody with a, a sort of minority experience being asked to be representative of every other person with that shared experience on the planet right. for everything from what do we do about this to quite a lot of work around you know policy and procedure um, and to sort of carry the weight of that, that's that seems very unfair. And I think something we do need to distribute because we will burn out our colleagues, we'll hurt our colleagues mm -hmm. if we don't take extra time to think about what challenges they might face. And that really does take it round to that that Boris comment again, doesn't it? So it hasn't happened to me, so it's not real. And that's mm -hmm. very peculiar because you know everybody knows like to be suspicious of someone who's like mean to bar staff or waiters or you know anyone who they think is in a service position and and it's about power and authority isn't it so if you are in a position of power and authority and people are nice to you 
that's because you're in a position of power and authority. If you want to know what somebody is like, then ask the receptionist how they treated them. Ask the housekeeping staff how they felt when that person interacted with them. And it's a real common thing to, to, to hear about in kind of quite executive job positions that people will come out and have a chat to see what the, what the person was like when they came in. Because anybody can put on a charming face for somebody who can fire them. <laughs> and it's really important to think about actually how we grate on each other, how we treat each other on a daily basis and how we respect it and are compassionate to each other. And it gets you back around to that weird kind of right on thing, doesn't it? Where people are so disparaging of, of political correctness and all that, when really what we're talking about is fairness and manners, which are things that have always been, I don't know if, if anything is a British value, which I doubt, but they're things that most people would accept as really core for anybody who, from a little kid to an older adult, anybody should be polite and kind to the people around them. And we've always had that unfair and we've always had that emphasis but somehow in this when it gets flipped into this situation maybe it's maybe it's flipped for these people you know for people who who don't necessarily share the same characteristics of other people that's when it gets difficult so those were the things that I've been thinking while I've been typing away <laughs> we have had some questions through mm. if anyone's interested do you want to go with questions already or do you want to yeah. wait and we can get a few happy with that are you Amrez yeah perfect okay so hello Ben nice to see you We've got one here saying, um, um, what sort of things are you doing in your role to address the inequalities faced with those with people with learning disabilities or who live in institutional care settings, which is a really useful thing, really useful question. Um, and, oh, another one here, getting straight into the trans on there, Bella, what you're going with it. How should NHS Trust respond to female service users requesting single sex provision? Um, if we answer those two, we've got a couple more coming in as well. So the yeah. first one was looking at supporting people with um, learning disabilities and who are in institutional care. Fab. Well, big thank you, Ben, for your question, first and foremost, um, and lots of great work that we are doing um, in, in my trust, obviously, what I can talk for. I think there's lots of national standards that you might be aware of. There's a learning disability standards that we have to, as an organisation, respond to and explain what we are doing with people with learning disabilities and how we support them. Uh, one of the big pieces of work we're doing is a national collaborative piece of work. I won't go into too much detail because there's quite a lot of NHS jargon that we love, but essentially we're working with the local communities to understand where the health inequalities exist and implementing some changes and then reviewing those changes over the next three years. So quality improvement collaborative. So that means working with our local communities. So we're really, really keen to work with community groups and service users and ensure that their views are heard that we recognise both positive and if there's negative or concerning issues, that we recognise what they are and we work with our service users to embed a meaningful change and to make those changes for people as well. I think, you know, health inequalities, sadly, were there before COVID. COVID-19 has shown a light on them and has brought them out more. And we remain constantly dedicated and committed to doing what we can to reduce them. So sometimes I think it's about looking at services directly and sort of saying to yourself, this service, how will this impact a person from a particular, particular protected characteristic? In this mm -hmm. instance, we're talking about learning disabilities. So there's a number of different processes, processy things that we do. Again, I don't want to bore you, Ben, but something called an equality impact assessment is when you, the service manager and colleagues sit down, and whenever they're making a decision on a service, they will go through it. They will look at how it impacts people from particular protected characteristics, they will look at data, they will look at speaking with service users to embed those um, areas of mitigation and concern to make the service better. 
Those are some of the things that we're doing at Penang Care where I work currently, but it's not the be all end all. I think there's a lot more that we can do and we should be working with, for example, MenCap and other charities out there to look at how we can become better as well. Hopefully that helps. I think you're right. I think one of the really important things is to make sure people are able to speak for themselves, one talk to rather than about, isn't it? With that key key thing there. Now, the second one is how should NHS trust, uh, respond to female service users who request single sex provision? And there's also something we were talking about beforehand that I think wraps into this as well, which is maybe thinking about conversion therapy as well, which is something which is a hot, hot button issue at the moment. Yeah, again, lots of thoughts on this. And firstly, you know, my heart goes out to anybody who is um, who's suffering at the moment with things that are happening in the world. The world doesn't seem to be a good place for people from trans communities. And I just want to say, as a proud ally, I stand shoulder to shoulder with our colleagues, friends, peers, um, and service the population. I think in the NHS, we need to be doing more work, uh, looking at our policies in particular, to ensure our policies are more inclusive, we should all have a trans policy in place that shows our staff what is the process and procedure and our, our the wishes of our service users should be met. You know, we make sure that if somebody wants to be in a female ward because they identify as female, they should be put in a female ward without question. It shouldn't be something we challenge or something we ask. You know, we should respect people for who they are and, and, and value people for who they are. So, you know, at the trust that I work in, we are, again, working with some service users, again, we're hugely um, big about service user involvement because they're the people who are experiencing and have got personal lived experience. And we are developing a policy. We're looking at some education and learning and training for staff in particular so they understand and they are more aware of things. We are also doing some work with um, local partners like the LGBT Foundation, um, looking at working with an organisation called Sparkle, which I know is a trans organisation, Mermaids, for example, and the Proud Trust. So we can they can hold us to account as as well and they can tell us what we're doing right and wrong sometimes it's having that impartial view that gives you that, that thought and idea and recently we've started looking at working with stonewall as well in terms of trans rights and trans support and how we can be better as an organization i think our services are the, as the um in the nhs they were developed you know ages ago and the one size doesn't fit all it, does, it doesn't work so we need to constantly look at our services and recognize where we can make things better I've got friends, I've got trans friends who've told me about their poor experiences of mental health services and what they've, go, what they've gone through. And I am really keen to um, listen to people and, like I said, look at how, how we can make things better. Mm. In terms of the conversion therapy, again, I, I'm disgusted, I'm heartbroken, I'm upset, I'm frustrated for my beautiful, fantastic trans colleagues, friends and siblings out there and what they're going through right now, because it's not right. Trans rights are human rights, and we as ally, as an ally, as a proud ally, I am 100% behind my trans colleagues, siblings, and friends. I want to do whatever I can. I think it's really important, for example, I got an email from Stonewall the other day about things that I can do. For example, write to my local MP and make sure that that is known, that I use my platforms. I've, you know, I've got Twitter, I've got quite a lot of followers, so I'm constantly posting out there about making sure that um, you know, I'm against what Boris is doing, I'm against what he's been saying. I think it's a very transphobic environment in our senior levels in politics right now, and that needs to be rooted out. And it's just heartbreaking, like I said, to see what's happening. Um, and you know, I've got trans friends and I'm constantly in contact with them. So if you've got trans friends or people around you, please contact them. Please let them know that you're there for them, help them with their health and well-being, because this has a disastrous consequence on their mental health and well-being as well. But you know, 
trans rights, our human rights, and, you know, we should be supporting people. Mm, absolutely. I think as well, really disturbingly, it's such a misuse of medical power to mm. suggest that you can fix something which is a person's yeah. being. That's right. not what med- that's not that's not what medicine is for. That's not what no. we're all trying to do in mental health. We're trying to help people to be themselves, the best version of themselves, not to hurt or harm people. And I think it really takes you back to the to the pain in the past that has been caused to all kinds of people. And it's a shame that we have to keep having this fight over and over again. But and it's and it's and it's cisgendered people making decisions for trans people. Absolutely. How's that right? Mm Sorry, I mean, I have a, an issue really about transgender sitting within mental health, to be honest with you, yeah, because yeah, I think yeah. that makes a fundamental assumption that if you're transgender, it's almost saying that it's a mental illness when clearly, you know, you might have some, um, you know, mental health difficulties associated with, you know, some of the things that you experience as, by being transgender, or you might have a mental health problem, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's directly attributable to being transgender and that transgender in itself is a mental health issue. And therefore, you know, I have a whole issue about the way we associate it with mental health and the way transgender sits within mental health services. And I think you exactly know, where we were with, with, with gay yeah. and lesbian exactly. colleagues. 20 yeah. years ago. Yeah, it's it is, isn't it? It's, it is exactly the same kind of um, dynamic, really, that we, we're recreating. And I think in some ways, you know, creating single-sex wards was good in some ways, but in others, it's it's created another layer of complication, hasn't it? Um, and I think it's this whole, like, binary thing that you're either male or female as well that we kind of need to challenge a little, a little bit as well. Um, again, I think it's, I think if you don't want to think, it's come from our own systemic problems. If we didn't have wards that were unsafe for people to be on, or that people felt unsafe on, then we wouldn't have to protect people because they would be safe. They would be in a place of safety, which is what we're all trying to do, isn't it? But the fact that that people who've particularly who've had sexual trauma have been so underserved that's yeah. what led us around instead of actually sorting out the initial problem which is if you come to a place of safety you should be safe yeah. we've done all these other things around it which haven't necessarily been very helpful the the um <laughs> people on facebook are carrying on without us so should i catch us up <laughs> oh, <sorry>. <laughs> <laughs> so alfonso says many laws policies exist to protect minority groups sadly this doesn't present uh, individuals from holding discriminatory attitudes health and social care workforce can hold these negative attitudes and they do what would you say we should try to do to change these and then Tendai has joined in saying um, by keeping promoting diversity and inclusion of ethnic minorities, I would say particularly in senior roles, will help eradicate and protect against discriminatory um, attitudes. But I know you want to talk more about, about our culture and heritage and things like that. Um, Florence is saying in your role, what are the measures you'll put in place to talk about um, uh, the issues of discrimination? Mm. Ooh, quite a load of questions there. Ah. Well, they've carried on without us. <laughs> It's great. They're great. They're getting involved. This is what helps to shape the conversation and wherever I can come Absolutely. in. Absolutely. Um, just remind me of the first question again. So, um, what do we do about individual people in the workforce holding um, negative attitudes? What can we do about it? Um, and then what measures would you, what could you put in place to address the issues of discrimination amongst staff? Yeah, I think with people at work, uh, people who hold those discriminatory values must be challenged. Mm-hmm. It's really, I know it might sound really easy for me to say that, But, you know, there's a quote from Desmond Tutu that said, if you are neutral in situations of injustice, you've chosen the side of the oppressor. So if you sit there quietly when something's happening, then you're just as bad as the person that's doing that activity. 
And that, that's not right. That's not on. Um, at work at the moment, we do some, for example, anti-racist training, which I've developed. And we talk about calling it out or calling it in. So calling it out was something is completely unacceptable. And you have to intervene and say, that's not right. And I will not tolerate this. Calling it in when someone says something and you want to be curious to why they've said that, what's made them say that. So, so there's ways of how you challenge people. There's ways of how you try to understand why that person is saying something like that. And it's really important, I think, when you're challenging that you you explain why so the person gets educated at the same time as well. Now, we are all responsible for our own education. It's not down to diverse communities or underserved communities to be giving everybody else education. They're tired enough as they are with the things that they face and the things that the challenges that are in life already. But we must educate ourselves and must educate our staff members, whether that's through training, whether that's through appropriate measures that we put in place at work. And I think we need to be really bold. I know there's some organisations out there. Um, I was in a trans allies group the, the other day, and there was one organisation that said that their chief executive goes to their inductions. And in the induction, she says that this is who we are and we will not tolerate any kind of discrimination. And if that's a problem for you, then please don't come work for us. She says it right at the beginning, she sets the tone. And I think that's quite a brave and bold thing to do. Yeah. And I think we should all be doing that. So I'm saying we will not tolerate this in any form against our staff, you know, against our service users. We will not accept it. This is not on. And we must carry out those grievances and investigations and root it out. We must implement actions of any kind in our policies, in the way that we work, in whatever we do to root it out and really make sure it doesn't have a place to exist in. I think that takes strong leadership. I think that takes strong action. Sometimes people get a bit scared about, oh, should I do this? What's going to happen? If I do that, what's going to happen? Well, we're going to send a very positive message out that this is not acceptable in your organisation, which I think is wholly, wholly appropriate. In terms of where I work, in terms of the actions that we've undertaken, we are looking at making anti-racist training, for example, mandatory. And possibly looking at the moment having mandatory equality, diversity, inclusion days where staff have to attend. We're looking at having hiring managers with mandatory training around unconscious bias, anti-racism work. So they are aware when they go into the interview recruitment process that what they're, how they're thinking, how they're feeling. Having diverse interview panels, right? it's basic, simple things like this, but it's yeah. still not in the 21st century. But making sure that we advertise in different places, it's not just NHS jobs, because not everyone goes there. And people yeah. who go there might not be from the diverse backgrounds and communities that we need. So, for example, if you want somebody who's LGBT, maybe you could do an advert in Pink News. If you want somebody who's BAME, maybe you do an advert with The Voice, for example. There's other boards out there and working with our communities. So, so going to community forums and networks, building trust and relationships and saying to them, their roles come out, would you promote it in your community for us? So we can get true diversity coming through into our workforce. And I think it's also really important when it comes to employee relations cases, we have diversity of chairs on grievances and disciplinaries. People are, you know, people see themselves represented because if someone can see themselves represented, so my, our chair says, if you can see us, you can be us. And representation is so important. It's, it's key. I work in an organization where I'm really lucky to have a diverse board who I report into, who understand the concerns and areas, who get the agenda. And that can be quite difficult sometimes as well. So lots of things that we're doing there as well. And that, again, is not the only stuff that we're doing. There's a whole load more of things we're doing. And I could talk for the world. So um, I'll stop there, Nikki, in case you've got any more questions. I'll let you know if any come in. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. That's great. There's so much there, isn't there? But I think that whole unconscious bias, um, could you say a little bit about, more about that? Because I think that's really critical, isn't it, at the moment? Because I think whereas a lot of people would identify, particularly in health, and say that they're not racist, 
um, or they're not discriminatory. I um I think that the unconscious bias is kind is kind of key because I think everybody has some element of of bias and it's about kind of getting that out in the open, isn't it? And having a conversation about that and understanding your own bias. I agree. And I think often what I hear quite a lot is I treat everybody the same. Mm-hmm. And I said to you, I said to somebody, so you treat everybody the same then? So what, what does that look like? There's a lovely image if you go on Google when you put in um, equality, diversity and inclusion, you might have seen it, but there's two sets of people at a football match mm-hmm. with a fence in front. And if you're treating everybody the same, you're giving everybody the same barrel to stand on, but the short person will never get to see that football game. Yeah, so it's not about treating people the same, it's about treating people equitably and fairly. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the key things I talk to people about quite a lot. There's also something here, I think Nikki and you, Vanessa, both touched on around racism and people think only a bad person can be racist. Mm-hmm. We've got to understand in the communities that we live in, we have been brought up around different people. We have watched different TV shows. For example, look at Little Britain now. You look at that and you're horrified with the things like that have been, that were saying at the time. Well, you know, people have been around, our friends, families, colleagues, our neighbours, things that we've been watching, they all have somehow, in some way, in some form, put racism inside all of us. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important that we say that, that racism exists in every form in society. So we have to challenge ourselves. Um, we have to make sure we hold the mirror to ourselves. And unconscious bias is all about those stere- social stereotypes that we hold about particular groups. So I had a colleague who told me once that, um, so she was a black woman and she had really proud and should be proud of her heritage. And her sons used to go out and they used to wear hoodies. And she was really scared because people were crossroads and the police would stop them. So she would say to them, don't wear a hoodie when you go out. Mm-hmm. But that's unconscious bias in its, in its own, isn't it? People are assuming that they are going to do something horrible because mm-hmm. of their thought about people who wear hoodies. So yeah. it's about, I think, recognising what your unconscious bias is. We all have one. It's not about being feeling guilty about it, but we all have it. It's about having that self-awareness of what it is when it plays out and then challenging yourself and think, oh, have I just thought that? That must be my unconscious bias. So what am I going to do to tackle that and to change that? So, for example, going out to different community groups, speaking to people from different community groups, listening to their experiences, understanding what they're going through as well. But we see unconscious bias hugely play a huge part in recruitment, for example, you know, there was, um, I believe there was a investigation that happened about three years ago, 2017, 18. Um, I think it was Nuffield Health who sent out two application forms, one with a traditional white name, one with a traditional name from a person from, back, from a back, black Asian ethnic community. Same applications, same qualifications, and they went out, sent 3,200 applications, and the person with the black Asian ethnic name had to apply 60% more to get his, their application seen because they weren't putting them through. If that isn't conscious bias in action, I don't know what is. Absolutely. Gosh, it's shocking, isn't it? Got another question come through because I can see we're heading towards the end. All right, do you mind if I just get this one in? This is from Rory. Hi, Rory. Um, Are people free to think differently? Um, Many staff hold religious views that others may consider anti-trans, homophobic relationship. And what do we do with them? I think, how can we we work with them? We'd be better by phrasing that. So how do we tackle that that issue? (laughs) Because people have a right to their own personal religious belief just as much. So it comes to sort of like, how do we how do we manage difference in that way? I think we should all be respectful and be kind to people. And if you believe in a particular religious belief or faith, that's your belief to believe in. But when we go out and about, we have to be respectful to one another and we can't be 
I mean, there's something happens in Manchester quite a lot when I've been in the central Manchester where there's somebody talking about Christianity and the concept saying, oh, being homophobic will take it to hell. It's like, if that's what you believe, you keep that in your mind. I don't want to hear it. Why are you telling me that to make me feel awful and bad and make me feel quite small? And then it leaves me to go away with those um, that sort of weight on my shoulders of how I feel and what I'm thinking. And we live in a world where everyone is should be accepted, should be championed, should be empowered and encouraged for who they are and what they want to be. And, you know, I have friends and colleagues who are really, really religious. Mm-hmm. And um, they will always say to me, you know, that's that's your life. You live your life the way you want to live it. And that's the thing, how it should be. I shouldn't be forced to behave or think or act differently because somebody else wants me to because of whatever reason that might be. I should be able to sort of say, this is my life. I'm going to live it like this. You live your life like that. That's absolutely fine. We should be able to coexist in this beautiful, diverse world without having to hate each other, without having to be nasty or awful towards one another. I guess the ultimate thing I want to say is just be, please be kind. Mm. Please be kind. I don't know if that answers the question, but that's just a thought I have. I wonder if, if sometimes these sort of like kind of the hurtful things that people say and do comes from the fact that they're they're living in quite monocultural lives so sometimes if you just haven't had an exposure to somebody who is different to you or somebody has a different belief to you be it religious belief be it um, a personal character protected characteristic anything like that I wonder if it's it comes from ignorance rather than people intending to be rude Although certainly there are people who are hurtful, rude and antagonistic in every walk of life. But I think sometimes when you come across it in health, particularly health students, it's particularly coming from maybe a cultural background or an experience where they haven't had that exposure. And you see it when you have like white students who haven't worked in multicultural areas before. And you see it when you have people who have come from maybe cultures or countries where a religious belief is absolutely predominant and you just don't meet anybody who doesn't conform to that. So when you come to a place where not only do people not necessarily believe the same thing as you, but they're living lives which seem contradictory to you, if you've never had an experience of thinking or talking that through or even thinking about how your how your beliefs might impact or hurt somebody else, I think sometimes you have these really clumsy moments when people are just shocked to find that that, that they aren't in tune with the world around them. Mm-hmm. Well, that things are different now. And I would say, you know, when that happens, mm. people, they should be challenged on their views and yeah. they should go away and educate themselves and not, yeah. um, ignorance isn't an excuse, unfortunately. You have to go and educate yourselves and read lots, lots of articles mm. and blogs and podcasts. I do one as well. Mm. Uh, they're all out there for you to read and listen and watch and understand and form your own opinion about something. I think I saw something on TikTok once where there was a gay man, uh, I think it was a show on BBC Three, and he was a gay Muslim, and the lady shouting, you can't be Muslim if you're gay. Well, who are you to say that? Yeah. Who are you to tell somebody they can't believe what they want to believe? If they want to believe in Muslim Islam, that's their choice. It's not really your choice to be saying that they can't, if that mm. makes sense. Mm. So yeah. um, on Facebook, people are saying everyone has a right to their beliefs and freedom of speech, but it doesn't give you the right to discriminate towards others. Um, and then Sophia Lil has also said we should be kind and respectful to that, absolutely. Um, and you've got, I think, the same kind of feeling, isn't it, that your beliefs are your own and your choices are your own, but it's about how you impact on other people, which comes back to that kindness again. Yeah. Yeah. I've got any more questions now, Vanessa. 
Yeah, I just um because I'm aware we're running out of time, and I think it's important to um to ask you about your podcast, Amaris, because that's something that you've you've started recently. Do you want to say a little bit about that before we finish? Yeah, thank you, Vanessa. Um, I have launched a podcast called Your Um Sorry, The Equality Lens, available on Amazon Music, Spotify, uh, Apple, all the main sort of streaming um platforms it was something i saw and i recognized there wasn't anything out there talking about equality diversity and inclusion that yeah. i could use it's based around healthcare predominantly so if you're working in healthcare or you're you know having a career in healthcare please do check it out and i'm speaking to different guests every week from different backgrounds walks of life to share their experiences and it's all about learning and helping yeah. people to educate and to, to be better yeah and they're about 20 30 minutes long as well so It'd be really good to hear your views or what you think about the podcast as well. Um, because I, f- I felt there was nothing there. There was a gap in the market, which I try to come in and help people with. That's brilliant. And um, and people can find that via your Twitter as well. They can indeed. I'm on Twitter at your EDI dude, always talking about all sorts. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, we've only got a few minutes left. So before we finish, I thought it'd be good to just go around and, um, and capture anything that we've missed, any kind of take-home messages that you've got for people who are listening tonight? Yeah, I would say the biggest take-home message for me, I think I've said it a few times, is please be kind. You never know what somebody else is going through, even if they've got a big smile on their face. I think as human beings, we're really good at perhaps hiding things or not sharing things for whatever reason that might be. You know, like I said, in my experience, people have said that you can't have a mental health problem because you're a man and you should be strong. So you've got to put on that facade so please be kind and if you've got something nice to say to somebody then please say it we always seem to have a world where we're always quite negative about one another and we judge people in appearance and the way they look for example but i have this saying that if i see if something is lovely about somebody i will say it so you know uh, i spoke to a colleague when i started in my old job and i said she had beautiful hair i thought they were beautiful and when i left she said you didn't know how tough that day was for me but you saying that to me really made a difference so if you've got something nice to say let's spread some joy and love in the world let's yeah. make a difference for people yeah i think that's a great message and um nikki any last minute yes. for you? everybody is learning all the time aren't they and everybody has the opportunity to do better so I would say try not to think, if you need to do some educating, try not to feel bad about it. Look at it as an opportunity to to grow and to learn and to do better, you know, because we all say things that unintentionally hurt people. And it's really important to take responsibility for that. But your guilt and you beating yourself up don't help people. What helps is you informing yourself and actually doing something about it and making amends and apologising. Those are the things that make a difference. Making a mistake is not the end of the world but doing nothing about it and thinking that it's somebody else's job is. So that's what I would say. Oh, I've got a double thumbs up. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. See if you can get three thumbs up, uh, Vanessa. Depression <laughs> <laughs> now. No, I mean, I, I agree with everything that's just been said, really. And I think the whole point um, that we've made tonight about unconscious bias is really important. And, you know, the need for us all to kind of check our own privileges, whether that's about race, class, gender, sexuality, um, whatever. I mean, certainly, you know, I always think about my children because they were born in Bradford, which is obviously 
um, very kind of diverse community. And and when we moved to York and I, I went to my son's first parents evening, they said to me, oh, he's very good at RE, isn't he? And I thought, good at RE, you know, we don't go to church and things. And what, what I kind of established was that aged seven I think he was at the time he knew all the festivals the reason why he knew all the festivals was because he lived in Bradford the reason why it was so striking is because he was then at a school in York that I think was something like 98% white um, so there's just an example where I think that you know the school the sort of teaching community aren't kind of overtly racist but at the same time it's about kind of what Nikki was saying earlier that if you're in a, a white community um, that you might not really be aware of your own um, kind of bias and narrow kind of focus um, but it's about kind of finding ways of opening yourself up to understanding things yeah. from other people's position and just educating yourself and I think for me on that point, um, I'm being a parent, I'm quite hopeful that things things are changing when I listen to my own children and hear kind of how inclusive they are. Um, and they don't, you know, they, you know, there've been experiences of, you know, the children who've been transgender, um, non-binary. And to be honest, the way they talk about it is just the way they talk about any any other child. There isn't that same um kind of demarcation that maybe we've made in in previous generations so i kind of feel hopeful that with the new generations things are starting to shift a little bit and hopefully that'll continue so that's yeah that's what i would say good and note I, to finish on yeah yeah i think on that note um yeah i think we're out of time anyway aren't we so and that's been a really um interesting discussion and it's been good to see you again and to and to hear about the work that you're doing and certainly you know we'll stay in touch and people can follow your story on twitter and your podcast as well and um and we'll end there and i think next week we're on holiday aren't we nikki because it's easter but we'll be back soon All three of us are going off together yeah exactly don't forget my invite ladies i want to be there as well come and join us Okay, thank you. Thank we'll you. see you tonight. Bye. Good night, all. Bye. Bye.